All right, well, good to see you today. Um, what a great, great week God gave us. And uh, with all the, the people down at the retreat, it was, uh, what a wonderful time. We were really envious that we couldn't sleep in and catch the service at 9.30 in the, in the theater we have down there for them. But uh, I'm glad to be with you. And you look good, most of you. Amen. You know, we have had an amazing, amazing number of new babies born in our church. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about nursery rhymes. Have you ever thought about nursery rhymes? How strange and weird they really are? And the thing, no wonder our children can't sleep at night. We have a nursery rhyme that goes like this, rockabye baby in the treetop. Now, you know how that ends. The bow breaks, the baby drops to the ground, and we go, good night, little baby. What is wrong with us? If you go back and look at it historically, it really goes back to the son of James VII, and apparently there was a move to switch babies in order to bring a Catholic child to the throne. And the idea was when the baby dropped, That is, there's going to be a new baby dropped, and nobody's going to know about it, and you're going to raise up this king, we're going to reveal the bloodline, and guess what? It's no longer an Anglican Protestant England, it is a Roman Catholic. So it's all about espionage, trickery, stealing children, rock-a-bye baby in the treetop. How crazy is that? Then we let them grow up. Now go out here, and we want you to sing this. Ring around the rosy, pockets full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. We don't really think about the words, we just have rhymes, because sometimes words don't have meaning to us, we just repeat things over and over again. It actually grew out of the 13th century when the plague, the black plague came across Europe and about one third of Europe died from that plague. And some people felt like if you put posies in your pockets, you could ward off the black plague. And the ashes was there because they didn't bury the bodies. They actually burned them because of the the danger of spreading the disease. And now we send our little children who can walk and talk and sing Go out and sing that for a little while. Then they start school. And we want to teach them more about how to really function as an adult. So we say to them something like this. You know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. How ridiculous is that one? All of us know the power of words. All of us know how how critical words spoken at the right time in the right way can change our life for the good, or words spoken in the wrong way at the wrong time can ruin our world and ruin our day. Think about God when he began the world. He simply spoke, the Bible says, the world into existence. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, it says this, Then God said, Let there be light. Today we're talking about the doctrine of revelation, the Word of God. 
And I want to show you this dimension of word and words and how it is it comes right out of the image of God because it is given to us to communicate in words because they are creative, they are powerful, and they are life-changing. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Proverbs chapter 18 and 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. James says, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. Brethren, these things should not be. And he tells us here, he draws this distinction, not only in Proverbs, but also in James, that my mouth is going to either give life or it's going to give death. It's going to be a blessing, it's going to be a curse. We like to create a third category. The category is, it's just kind of, you know, not really that significant. It's just kind of idle words. So Jesus addressed that. Matthew chapter 12. He said, but I say unto you, every idle word that men speak they will give an account for it in the day of judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly good news. Because I think about me and my, the way that I use words, the way that I use my mouth, and I wonder how often are my words just simply idle. They don't really have any meaning. They don't have any depth. Maybe it's just me running at the mouth, so to speak. Maybe it's just me opening my mouth and changing feet which I can be good at. Or maybe I evaluate my mouth, and I, and I began to think about this as I was preparing this message. Do I speak words of life? Do I speak blessings? And I started to evaluate a little bit. Does this word lift someone up? Does this one bring someone down? Now, the other thing we humans are good at doing is justifying our words, are we not? Well, you know, that's not what I meant, or you didn't know my heart doesn't matter. It doesn't say in any of these God is going to base it on what we meant to say or the heart attitude. No, it's simply what comes out of your mouth. Why? Because there is power in the tongue. There is power in words. So much so that when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he spoke to a leper. He just spoke to him, and he was cleansed. He spoke to a centurion servant. He was healed. He went up to the tomb of Lazarus, and he simply said, Lazarus, come forth. In Revelation chapter 19, it tells us that when Christ returns, he will, listen to this, he will be called the Word of God. So our words are powerful, they're meaningful, they're significant, every word that we speak. When we start to understand the gravity of the words we speak, we can understand a bit of the Word of God and how important it is for God to communicate to us. The psalmist put it like this, Thy words, O Lord, are fixed in the heavens. The grass withers, Isaiah said. The flower fades, but the Word of God, listen to this, abides forever. A lot of people look at their Bible in a lot of different ways. 
Some people pick up a Bible and they will say, well, you know, it's a religious book, one of many. Some will pick it up and say, I believe some of it. I'm not sure I believe all of it. Most people would say, I don't understand all of it. Some people have made some noble attempts to actually read it. Some have really mastered certain parts of it or even maybe much of the Bible in terms of knowing kind of the divine flow of God. But what I want to do is I want to give you today an understanding of what the Word of God is and what some of these words that we use as we talk about the Bible and what makes it distinctive from all other works on planet Earth. Why it stands apart from all others, not just because of its circulation, but because of its divine inspiration. Let me talk to you a little bit about this word, inspiration. It actually comes from a Greek word that means God-breathed. When you pick up your Bible, it is God-breathed. So we use these terms, and you may not be co- these may not be common terms to you, but what we want to do in this series on doctrine, we want to take you up a little bit on your understanding from an intellectual standpoint, as well as bring in the spiritual dimension so that you can grow not only spiritually, but you can grow mentally, intellectually, give you tools that you can use when you talk to people about the Word of God. Here's one of the terms we use when we talk about the Bible. We say it is verbally inspired. That means that every word in the Bible is significant and important, and it comes from God. There are not insignificant words, in other words. We're going to see that a little bit more in depth. Second word we use is this word plenary. And plenary means that every part of the Bible. Have you ever heard someone say, well, you know, I really like the New Testament, but I really don't really like the Old Testament. Or I like the New Testament, God, but the Old Testament, God, seems a little bit rough. I mean, after all, he takes all these guys out to battle. He wipes out nations. He, you know, he does stuff that just seems not nice. When we believe the Bible is inspired, we believe not only is every word inspired, but also this idea that every part of the Bible is inspired, and not one part is more inspired than the other part. In fact, if you don't believe and buy into the Old Testament as being the inspired word of God, the New Testament, I'm sorry to say, has very little significance because most of it quotes the Old Testament foundationally is built upon the prophets, is built upon the words of the patriarch, it's built upon the scriptures of the Old Testament. So you have to have this idea of verbal, plenary understanding of the scripture. And then the third word is the word infallible, infallible. What that means, it is free from error. So one of the things I have to do, if I believe this is the word of God, I have to say this, I believe every word and every part comes from God, and it is free from error. If it is a book filled with error, I'm going, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. If I say that, if I discount it, then I can say, well, then it must not apply to me. I only like the verses that make me feel good. I only like the theologies that help me to, you know, kind of explain my day, but I really don't want to get involved in all this God stuff on a very deep level. Now, for most of you, these terms, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but these terms maybe are the first time you've heard them, but, but we want to introduce them to you because we want you to understand at least the concepts, whether you re- remember the words or not. It's every word, every part, free from error. We want a Bible we can trust. 
We want to be able to stand on something that says this is God. People ask questions like, what is truth? Jesus answered it in John chapter 17 and verse 17. He said, thy word, O God, is truth. Well, let's look at this scripture that forms the basis for our study today, and it's 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And it begins with this idea of what we've talked about in the idea of inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration, that is, the breath of God. The breath of God. Have you ever been around someone who has bad breath? You know exactly, instantly, something's gone wrong. You don't know what it is. Might be onions, might be garlic, might just be a bad hygiene moment in their life. But you know it instantly, right? And we've all been guilty of that, I'm sure. Why is it the people with the worst breath want to get the closest to you? I don't get that. But I find myself sometimes, you know, I'm backing up, and I'm, you know, when I see people back up, I'm thinking, there's something wrong. I want you to think about this. When God breathes, he breathes truth. The closer you get to God, the more you understand truth. When you back away from God, then you all of a sudden the truth gets mixed with that other aroma, the aroma of the world. You begin to smell the, the doctrines of the world. You begin to smell some of those doctrines that are, that are of the enemy. And you miss out on God, so you want to draw close unto God, as Scripture says. And it says, and he will draw close unto you. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And that's what we're teaching. It's teaching for reproof. Sometimes when I read the Scripture, I have to be corrected for correction. And for instruction in righteousness, do you know apart from the Word of God, you cannot live a righteous life? You don't even know what, it, what a righteous life is. In Romans chapter 7, Paul said, you know, if the Bible had not said, if Scripture had not said, thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't even know what coveting was. He said, I read it, and I realized, oh, that's wrong? You mean I can't covet my neighbor's wife, house, or car, and God be cool with it? Yeah, that's what that means. So when you have those feelings of coveting, some people say, well, I'm not really coveting. I'm, I'm glad they have it, but what I really want is the same thing too. So I don't want them to do without. I just want to have it too. Well, that is coveting. And that the Scripture tells us that's what the Bible does for us. So let's talk about, first of all, the divine origin of the Bible, of the Word of God. Interesting, in 1776, there was a, uh, a French philosopher who was an atheist named Voltaire. And Voltaire made a very strong statement. He said this, 100 years from today, there will not be a Bible in the earth. Well, it's been 100 years plus, right? We have Bibles, so we know Voltaire was wrong. What's most interesting is 100 years later, after Voltaire was dead, and his own press and house were being used to print Bibles and to store Bibles by the Geneva Bible Society. A hundred years furthermore from the day of Voltaire's prediction, the first edition of his work sold for 11 cents in Paris. But the British government paid the Tsar of Russia one half million dollars for an ancient Bible manuscript. So Voltaire wasn't a very good prophet, was he? 
When you look at your Bible, you say, well, there's all these books in here, and where did all these come from? And, and just so you know, they're, they're not arranged chronologically. So that's why sometimes you go, how does all this fit together? They're fit together in groupings, like the Pentateuch, which is the first five books. They're kind of grouped together. You know, the wisdom literature is grouped together. The prophets are put together. So it's not chronological. If we did it chronologically, we'd take the book of Job and we'd push it to the book of Genesis about chapter 15 because Job and Abraham lived at the same time. This Bible was written, the human writers, by 40 different writers. Some were kings, some were prophets or other religious leaders. Some were philosophers or peasants or poets, fishermen, statesmen, a tax collector, and even a doctor. God inspired them to write, and then he preserved the process. It's written over a period of about 1,500 years. Now, if you stop and think about it, you can't get three people to agree on a matter, let alone 40 people who come from all different walks of life, separated by 1,500 years, and yet the Word of God has this amazing ability to have this, this, this cohesiveness and this purity that is undeniable even if you set it aside from a religious work, just look at it from a document from antiquity. It's unique, very unique. In fact, uh, some of the oldest manuscripts we had of the book of Isaiah, we felt like they were true, they were good, and they were consistent with all other documents. And then in 1957, there was a shepherd boy who was throwing rocks down in a little area off the Dead Sea called the Qumran. And as he threw these rocks, he heard something break inside, and that sounded like a lot of fun. He kept throwing rocks and see if he could hear that sound again, went down to investigate. And there were these large clay pots that were used for, by the Jews for the purification of, of, in the rituals of the religion. And there he looked in there, and there's large scrolls. Turned out this little shepherd boy found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the real question came, what if, because they were hundreds of years older, what if they're not consistent with the other ones we have? Do we have a bad Bible? Do we have a bad book of Isaiah? It turned out that they were spot on all the way, that God had preserved a process. Now, the Bible is written in two different languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And you can see how, how God had taken all these different human writers, all these languages, all these continents, and he had brought it together with something that is divinely inspired. Now, when we talk about the Bible, we want to talk about revelation. That is, how does God get his message to us, not only in the Word, but how does he get it to us in our hearts? Well, listen to what it says in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. He said, These things I have spoken unto you, while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit. You know the Holy Spirit is your helper? When you don't understand the Bible, what does he do? He helps you to understand it. When you go through a crisis, he's there to help you and to bring comfort to you. Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. You see, when I speak to you, I speak to your mind, but the Holy Spirit takes what is in your mind, he transfers it into your heart, and he allows you to discern good from evil, truth from error, according to the word of God. It says, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said. The disciples didn't know it. You're going to be writing the Bible, guys. 
I'm going to bring back to your memory everything you've experienced here, and I'm going to do it in such a way that you're going to change the world with this thing called the gospel. That second word, inspiration, we've talked about. It is the idea that God is the author. Human writer, but God is the author. He moved men or he carried men along that they might write the word of God. And then there's this idea of illumination. So when you read it, how do you understand it? You don't understand it because you're super smart. You don't understand it because you read it a lot. You understand it because God opens your eyes up. So one of the great things you can do when you pray is pray something like this. Holy Spirit, I don't have a clue what I'm reading. I don't understand the Bible. I mean, I'll tell you this. There are parts of the Bible, I'll read it, and I go, I don't know what's going on. I remember one time I had led this guy to Christ, and and, um, he was reading and reading, and he called me up, and he said, this guy, Ezekiel. Now, if you've ever read Ezekiel, especially the first several chapters, you go, what is going on? He goes, this guy, Ezekiel. He said, I got it figured out. I said, what? He said, he was doing some bad mushrooms. He was convinced nobody could write this with a sane mind. And there are parts of the Bible you read it and go, God, I see a bit of this, and I try to understand this, and I try to interpret. God, I don't know what this means right here. And over time, God will begin to show you glimpses of his glory in that. This idea of illumination can be maybe seen in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It goes like this. That the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. You see, it's something that's given to me. I get from God a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is his calling and what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance to the saints. You see, it's all about God opening up your heart, opening up your mind, teaching you the word of God. Ask him to help you to understand it. When you read it, just read it and just say, God, I'm going to read it and I'm going to ask you and trust you to teach me the word of God. Now, secondly, I want you to understand something about the evidence for the word of God. And this is one of the great doctrines I'm getting ready to tell you here. It's called the doctrine of preservation. How did God make sure the Bible that was written back there is the Bible that we have today? Well, one of the things was the Jews. The Jews were meticulous. God chose exactly the right people to be the keepers of the sacred text. In fact, do you know that when a scribe, and that was a guy who just copied, made copies of the manuscripts, right? A scribe, when he began to write, and he would copy that down in Hebrew, when he came to the sacred name of God, he would stop. He would put his pen down. He would go wash his hands. He would pick up a different pen. He would write the sacred name of God. He would put it down. He would go wash his hands. He would pick up the other pen and continue because in no way did he want to make unsacred that which was sacred before God. Now, furthermore, every Hebrew letter has a numerical value. So what he would do is he would take that sheet and he would count up the numerical value and he would record that and then he would take his copy and he would, he would count it up and if the number came up different after several checks, he would take that manuscript that might have taken him hours to copy and he would destroy it. 
He wasn't going to go back and, you know, erase it, scratch it out, try to fix it in the process. Because it was a sacred word of God, and it was to be without error. So listen to this doctrine, Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now these are the words, the individual words of God. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. So who's responsible for preserving and for keeping it pure? It is God. God keeps his word. The internal evidence can be seen in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. Now let me show you something. When you're, if you're reading from a King James or a New King James Bible and you come to a word that's italicized, let me show you the integrity of this translation. If it's an italicized word, that means it's not in the original Hebrew or Greek. It was added for your understanding. Because when you're reading from a a language like Hebrew or Greek, there's not an English equivalent for every single word that you have. So what it does is says, we're putting this word in to help you understand what's going on here. But the integrity is, we want you to know what it looks like without that word so you can read it in its context and see what God is up to. So every word of God is pure, and he is a shield unto them who put their trust in him. Now look at this. Add thou not unto his words. Suppose one day you go, you know, this, is, this book of Genesis is pretty good, but it needs a couple of more chapters. So I'm just going to add a couple of more chapters. All right, and you add that a couple of more chapters, you think, well, there, that, now it makes sense. There's a whole religious body called Mormons who did that with the book of Genesis. And then it got bad flack, and so they pulled the extra chapters out. You see, you can't add to his word, because look what it says. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you be found a liar. Revelation is even more powerful. The Bible closes with this idea that if you add unto his words or you detract from his words, he will take your name from the Lamb's book of life. So we don't have a license to kind of add to and take away. How about Jesus in Matthew 5? Listen to what he said. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away until all the law is fulfilled. You know what a jot and a tittle is? No. Why would you? Smallest characters in the Hebrew language. He said, let me tell you something. The smallest thing is important to God. Think about you. You might feel small in a great big world, but you are significant to God. Your thoughts, your hurt, your pain, everything you go through. Sometimes people will say to me, and you can kind of pick up, something's not going well. I say, how you doing? And they'll say something like, not so well, but it's not a People have bigger issues than me, and it's not that big. And I said, it is big because it's on you. It is significant to God because it's a part of you, and it's affecting you. And just like God takes his word and says, even the smallest characters are important, it's important to you. I remember when I first came to Christ, and I was just trying to get some sleep. I was laying down, and fear just overcame me. 
I didn't even know what I was afraid about. I was just fearful. And I, I remember praying something like this, God, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm apologizing to God for being afraid. God, I'm sorry I'm afraid right here. And I know I don't even know what I'm afraid about. But I want you to give me strength. And it was almost instant that I felt his presence. Because you see, the presence of God is more powerful than your problems. And the words that you speak, and I believe that, that I, I honestly believe what I'm getting ready to tell you, that there is more power in prayers that are verbally offered than prayers that are prayed in your heart. Because we're exercising that power of speaking out and declaring a thing. And sometimes when you're all alone, you're in your car, wherever you are, and you just start praying out loud. A lot of people are hesitant to pray in a crowd out loud because they think they don't pray well. Let me tell you something. If you can talk, you can pray well. The best prayers are the honest prayers. The best prayers are the prayers that come right from your heart and just tell God what you're thinking. He said, so I say unto you, not heaven and earth will pass away. Not one jot or one tittle by any way may pass away until the law is all completely fulfilled. How about some external evidence that the Bible is the Word of God? There's a guy named William Albright, and Albright, a famous archaeologist, wrote this, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Not a Christian. You know what he said? He later said, the best and most accurate document from antiquity is the Bible. In other words, I may not believe it religiously, but I cannot deny it as a document of history because of its accuracy. So you can be assured that the Bible that you have, that Bible is an accurate representation of the word and the mind and the heart of Almighty God. Predictive prophecy is an amazing thing as well. Do you realize that the Bible is the only religious book that chronicles predictive history and shows you easily how it's fulfilled? Things written hundreds of years ago, the coming of the Messiah, where he would be born, the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, those things 700 years before his birth fulfilled. The persecution of the nation of Israel, scripturally laid out. On and on and on you can go. Nations that rise up, that form uh, alliances, they're there. We see right now this, this alliance that's happening in the Middle East. It's all predictive. It's all going on. I can read the newspaper and I can go to the Word of God and say, look, this is where that is. And what we see happening right now, this, this formation, I think there's going to be a coalition of Asian nations that are going to come together in the last days because Revelation says the kings of the east will mount this force and come up against the nation of Israel. So what do we have happening right now? We have all this, this saber rattling going on in North Korea, and who do they call in to kind of help out and get things in better shape? Well, China's going to come in and help. South Korea's a little bit concerned. Now Japan's concerned. What would happen if all that great power force of of Asia would come together in one united force in the last days. That's what the Bible says will happen. Watch carefully what happens in the newspaper. It will tell you, it will guide you a bit in your understanding of Scripture because things are fulfilled in historical time and space and they can be chronicled in the Word of God. Third, I wanted you to see the power of the Word of God. 
God's Word is immensely powerful. I came across this uh, little piece of information. It's called, Americans Believe Our Society Needs the Bible. Now, if you look at the numbers here, 77% said we're in trouble. 32% said, and it was the largest of that, that group, said it, it's because we lack Bible reading. Well, that's a pretty good percentage if I take that and just kind of run it across America and say, okay, we've got, what, 360 million people living in America and 33% of them, 32% of them think that the, one of the problems is we're not reading the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean they believe it. doesn't mean they, they're Christians. It just says they recognize as a moral guide that we're not adhering to. And 29% says the negative influence of media. Shocking. Media is negative? News to me. How about 25% says uh, corruption and corporate greed? Another shocking information. Do you realize that if I take those two remaining ones, and I apply biblical principles to them, I really do have 77% of the solution found in the Word of God. I can answer all of them. Because I can go back here to, why. have you ever wondered why is the news always so negative? Why don't they just report good stuff? There is a very easy philosophical reason. Here it is. The, the world view is that man is good. And when man does something bad, that's news. The biblical view is that man is a sinner. And of course he's going to do bad, so that's not news. If we had a worldview that was focused on the Word of God, then what we would report is good news because that's just contrary. Can you believe it? People are doing good things. What a shock. Same thing with greed. Doesn't the Bible address greed? You know, one of the quickest ways to address greed in our life is when we give. Because you know what it does? It takes the dependence on money out of our hands and it puts it over to God. You know why I give? I mean, not just because of the Bible. I give because of the way I feel when I give. I feel less stingy. I feel less greedy. I feel like I'm sharing and I'm doing something to bless more people. I also give because Scripture mandates it, but my first and primary reason is I like what it does to Phil. Because Phil, without things like that in his life, becomes too much Phil for Phil. You ever kind of woke up one day and said, you know, I really don't like me? And it wasn't because of self-depreciation thing. It was really you kind of looked at kind of who you were and what you thought and how you lived and how you acted, and you go, that's not what I like. I remember meeting Phil in England, 1998. And I didn't like Phil. I said, Phil's got to change. And you know, I think what we all need is we need those processes in our life where, where God reveals something to us and God transforms things in our life. You know, in the Bible, it, it's, it's kind of interesting because We talk about the Word of God, but it uses two different words, and I'm going to show you those in a minute. But first, let me give you this from Deuteronomy. See if you've heard this before. Jesus will quote it, and we'll quote Jesus' words. But Deuteronomy, it says, Man shall not live by bread alone. I need bread, but I can't just sustain myself by that. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, that's the Word of God, he says there, right? 
Now let's go to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. You know what he does to Satan right there? He quotes the word of God. And the Bible has two different main words for the word word. One is logos and the other one is rima. So he says to Satan, the word logos says, and when he's quoting it, he doesn't use the word logos there. He uses the word rima, the revealed word. It's like you saying, God showed me something from his word. And now it's my rima. It's revealed to me. It's personal to me. It's real to me. When God begins to show you something, it's pretty amazing. At our couple's retreat, we, uh, one of the things that Ron and Tina did in, in leading our retreat was they gave an illustration. They actually used a glass of water, but I'm going to use my iPhone because it's far more contemporary. How much does this phone weigh? You know, you could say, well, it weighs two ounces or five ounces or it weighs a pound, you know, and, but that's not what we're looking for. It really depends on how long I hold it. See, right now it's pretty light. If we, if we went on for another 10 minutes, it would get heavier, wouldn't it? If I went on for 12 hours, I'm not even sure I could hold it. 24 hours, impossible. It's already starting to hurt a little bit. An average man would fold like a cheap suit, but I'm holding it. I'm holding it, and it's getting a little heavier. You ever been in one of those worship services where everybody had their hands up and you tried to join in? And spirituality left you when your arms got tired? His phone's getting heavier. I want to switch arms. I want to give it to the left guy for a while. See, it, it really is how long I hold it. When I put it down, I have instant relief. Let me ask you something. What are you holding? How heavy is it to you right now? See, the longer you hold it, the heavier it's going to get. You might be holding, withholding, if I could use that term, forgiveness from somebody. Maybe it's just been a couple of days. Maybe it's been a couple of weeks. But the longer you hold it, the heavier it gets. Maybe you're holding a little bit of resentment, pride, superiority, self-justification. Maybe it's some sin that you don't want anybody to, to know about. For you, it's just kind of private, and you know it's a problem, but you're still holding it. You know what the cross is all about? It's about releasing it. It's about letting go. You see, you go back and you pick it up again, and it feels okay. It's not that bad. And then it starts getting heavy again. We can never experience the full joy of the Lord when we hold on to things that are contrary to the way God designed us in His image might even be the words of your mouth. You can't control them. 
You have to set it down. You have to put it down. Charles Dickens said this about this relationship he had with Christ. He said, I commit my soul to the mercy of God. Through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I now most solemnly impress upon you the truth and the beauty of the Christian religion as it came from Christ himself and the impossibility of going far wrong if you humbly but heartily respect it. You know, all of us, we just have to submit ourselves to the mercy of God. The mercy of God as revealed in the Word of God. Let me give you a couple of life applications. Here's the first one. The Bible says that the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. Think about that. Contained within the Word of God is God's power unto salvation. In other words, I can be rescued from despair, from sin, from disgrace, from discouragement, all through the Word of God by the power of God. And secondly is this one. No man can truly live without the Word of God. You can live. You can even prosper. You can find moments of happiness without a doubt but you can't really live without the Word of God. And that's why even when you're resistant with the Word of God, even when you read the Word of God with a bad attitude, have you ever done that? I guess I ought to read my Bible. You're just kind of mad. If you're looking for an answer, you're hoping it's just something's going to jump out at you. You know, you drop your Bible open, hoping it falls to the right place, you know, and that God speaks to you. And you go with it a bad attitude, you start reading and you go, all of a sudden, there's transformation happening because the Bible, the Word of God, is living and active, and it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Sometimes I just talk too much. I just need to read more. Just let God bathe me in the Word of the living God, the living God. Let's pray together and pray. Stand together and pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we... As we have thought about, we've learned some things about the Word of God. We've thought about our own personal journey and what that looks like and what that might mean, God. God, some people right now, and, and maybe it's all of us, God, we're holding on to something. And it's getting heavier and heavier every day. It's not comfortable. We know it's an obstacle. We know it's not beneficial. But for some reason, we just feel like we have to hold on to it. It's at the cross that all the burdens are laid down. I'm going to ask you right now as we just keep our eyes closed and our heads bowed in prayer, would you just ask God to reveal to you what it is you need to let go of? What is it you just is weighing you down? You may have multiple things in that hand. Can you lay one of them down right now? Can you say, God, I'm tired? I need to be refreshed. I need to feel the freedom and the release that comes from just going to the cross. The greatest burden any man, any woman could have is the burden of not knowing God. Do you know God? 
as your Savior, as your King, as your Lord? Why not release that burden of trying to make your own way and figure out religion? Why not just lay that down? It's heavy. It's too heavy. And call upon the name of the Lord to bring salvation and grace and life to you. All who call upon the name of the Lord, the Scripture says, will be saved. Jesus said, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest in me. He's a lover of your soul. He's compassionate, caring, and kind. He speaks life. He speaks blessing. Receive his life, receive his blessing now. As we worship the Lord right now, and as you just entertain this time of his presence, we just call upon you, God, right now, your presence to come. Would your presence fall in this place? God, we believe that this, this church that you've birthed, this influenced church that's just 14 months old, God, the only explanation of it is your presence. It's not us, God. It's not our music. It's not our teaching. It's not any of those things, God. It's you. So we invite your presence now. Spirit of God, come in power. May we feel your presence. May we know your presence. May we know your power. May you wash away all the dark things. May you just help us to release the things that are heavy in our life. Come, O Spirit of God, in your powerful presence. Anoint every ear. Anoint every heart. Speak to every mind. Bring clarity and bring back good thinking and good logic activate our conscience to to where it reflects the image of Almighty God. We give you praise. We give you glory. Come, Holy Spirit of God, now in great power and great wonder. We give you glory in Jesus' name.